Thank you very much. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to have them. So if you'll pass them to the aisle, we'll pick them up and certainly lift you up in prayer this coming week. Romans 8, salvation from start to finish. It's filled with comforting promises, one right after another. Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8 is filled with promises and confidence infusing truth for the believer in Jesus Christ. And it ends with this one, that nothing shall separate us, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dustin Binge reminds us that believers don't depend on luck, chance, fate, or fortune. We trust a God who has planned all things for our good and for His glory. Trust, trust Him, rejoice in Him, and obey Him. For the last month, our sights have been set on verses 28 through 30, where we've discovered that this is a context of comfort and one that should infuse confidence in us with regard to our salvation. Romans 8 has one comforting consideration after another built upon the sturdy power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are given assurance that no detail in our lives is unsupervised by our great God and Savior. Nothing comes into your life, believer, that hasn't come through His hands and He knows all about and that nothing comes to us that He has not permitted and planned Thomas Schreiner sums up these verses well when he says, believers can be confident that such a future destiny will be theirs because God works all things together according to good for His children. We know that all things turn out for our good because God has His covenant affection upon us, that's foreknowledge, predestined us to be like His Son, called us to salvation in the gospel, justified us in the courtroom of heaven, and will certainly glorify us. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, and God glorified every believer in Christ. Maybe you're saying, I'm not glorified yet. Well, I think Paul is writing in such certain terms that you can count on it. It's written in the past as good to take to the bank. So these happy and hopeful truths are given to us in Romans 8 the golden chain of five links of salvation. So, you know, as we look at this um, this morning, I want to I settle on three thoughts for you. The first would be uh, just a refresher of our salvation from start to finish. God foreknew. When? Well, we've looked in the Scripture before the foundation of the world. J.I. Packer has the best definition I found. Before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom He would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of God's free and sovereign grace, for it is unconstrained and unconditional and not merited by anything that we bring to the table. To know intimately beforehand is to set His love upon us. One reliable source uh, defines this word as used of God's eternal counsel. It includes all that He has considered and purposed to do prior to human history. So God's not juggling plates, hoping that it's all going to work out in the end, but from start to finish. And this ought to do much for 
your faith. This ought to do much for uh, your sense of assurance that God has you in his grip. In Jesus Christ, we were called before an election. In Jesus Christ, we were called out uh, of our sin in redemption. In Jesus Christ, we are called to an identification with Jesus Christ in our union with him. God predestined. The word simply means to mark out one's destiny. It's a biblical word. We should not be ashamed of biblical words. To mark out one's destiny, to determine a person's destiny beforehand. And this is the sense in which it differs a bit from foreknowledge. It's the path that God has established to bring about his covenant love to us. And not only that, we're called. And that was our subject last week. It's an effectual call. It's what slumbers our being, awakens our slumbering being. It's what happened to Valor Babin a few weeks ago when his mother said to him on a Wednesday night, you need to be right with the Lord. And Valor began to think about that. He began to think about the world and his life. And it led him to a brokenness before God. God calling So our job as believers is to sow into people's lives the truth of the gospel and praying that God would bring the increase. God calls. Maybe he will call you this morning where you will see this morning after hearing sermons and hearing others share the gospel with you, awakened in your heart of hearts, I got to quit managing my life based upon what I think is right, and I need to follow Jesus Christ in wholehearted obedience. God is calling. It's an effectual call. It's not, it's not a general call. That's what I do. That's what Bible uh, preachers do. There's a general casting out of the seed. It's what missionaries do. We should love to hear the, the preaching of the gospel. I was in the airport yesterday. And I listened to three co-workers who worked in a food court in the air, airport. And one of them was just going on and on and on about the glory of the Lord. And he was sharing the word of God freely with his co-workers. And they were chiming in, amen, amen. And I got up from my seat and I walked over and I said, you don't know how refreshing it is to hear the word of God shared so freely in the airport. Thank you. And we began to talk. I've been a believer since 2019 and it's changed my life, he said. You keep sharing God's word. Amen. God's calling. So through the general sowing of the word, the spirit of God is moving, awakening, convincing, showing, and guiding so that Jesus Christ becomes the most beautiful person you've ever known. How can that be? Well, David gives us a little foretaste of that in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in his temple. David longed to be in the presence of God and to serve him this effectual calling. And so the truths presented in Romans 28 through 30, and I was just thinking, how many Christians may go their whole life in a church never hearing Romans 8, 29, and 30 read. Never heard it taught. 
Never heard a, a, a humble and honest effort to explain it and to teach it to God's people and just go right over it and don't think about how great our God is and that this salvation that we know in Jesus Christ was with Him before we were born, before creation came into being. Well, these truths are evident elsewhere in the New Testament. I thought it would be important, as I have exposed you to cross-references in our preaching and teaching, for us just to look at one here in, he, in Ephesians 2. And this is kind of Romans 1 through 8 in miniature, actually. He, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here he's talking to the church who would receive this letter, and he's diagnosing their spiritual condition. You were dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses and sins. You loved your sin. You cherished your sin. You lived for your sin. And the way he describes it in verse 2 is that you once walked according to the course of the world. Everything the world said was important, that's what you followed. The world said, if you want to be significant, you'll, be, you'll have money, so you've given your life to pursue it. The world says that you will be significant and you will be happy if you pursue relationships, and so you pursued relationships and sex and all that comes with it. The world says what you need to do is entertain yourself, and so you've given yourself freely to entertainment and the pleasures of your flesh with no thought toward God, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, speaking of this cosmic treason that we live in, uh, this war, this battle that wages, uh, rages around us. He says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We didn't really know it. We knew that things were not right, but we kept going on because that's all we knew. Live for me. Live for myself. Carrying out the desires of body and flesh like the rest of mankind. And here is one of the greatest conjunctions in all the Bible. I don't know if you get into conjunctions, but this is one you need to get into. Verse 4 is the story of every believer. But God. <laughs> but God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Do you see the parallel there, church, between this passage in Romans 8, 29 and 30? God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of your works, not of your self-righteousness, not of, in your improvement plans, for by grace, God's grace, you have been saved. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of His dear Son. Not as a result of works, verse 9 says, 
We bring nothing to the table. Salvation is not synergistic, working together, you know, I'll do my part and God will do it. We, we have nothing to bring to the table. If you've learned nothing from Romans, I pray it would be this, that I bring nothing to the table in my relationship with God. All I have to offer Him is brokenness and strife and rebellion. It is God who is rich in mercy, who's made me alive in Jesus Christ. It, it was Him who delivered me from my sins. And I know what some of you are thinking. i got a free will. And I remember hearing one noted uh, Bible teacher say when he was in seminary and bothered by this whole issue of God's sovereignty, took his pen and went up to his professor and went, there, I dropped it. And we're not denying that we will do thousands, make thousands of decisions in our lifetime. But with regard to our relationship with God, if we lived 10,000 years, we'd never pull the lever. We'd never push the button apart from God awakening us to our spiritual death. By the way, he said, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make decisions, do they? Now, I've preached a few funerals. I've never seen anybody crawl out of the casket up here. I told you I wanted the oaken casket. Nobody, nobody's done that. That's how we're described spiritually. What changes it? The Spirit of God changes it. I remember years ago, I mean, one, year one or two in my, uh, my ministry, and I've been uh, in pastoral ministry for 36 years, and I can remember wrestling with this issue of God's sovereignty and Gwen and I talking about it in our little parsonage in southwest Mississippi and you know, we began to think about our children. What chance do they have? God's sovereign. And we were thinking, well, it'll be our fine parenting. We'll have devotions every night, and it'll be the fine curriculum that we pick for them. It'll be the fact they'll be on row two all the years of their upbringing and they will we'll lead them to the good shepherd, and that'll make all the difference. Well, that brings me no comfort at all. Yes, we're to set the table. <laughs> yes, we're to share the gospel. Yes, we're to, to, to make spirit-led decisions about all of these things. That has a place. But ultimately... Whether they live or die is up to the sovereignty of our, our great God. So which would I rather trust with our children's well-being? I'll trust in Him to do what only He can do. And I will live an obedient life and point them to a shepherd who's great and invites us to come to Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus said, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest indeed. Well, we haven't looked at the last two in this golden chain, and I want to do that. And I want to end with glorification. I'm so excited to get there. I just want you to know I'm thrilled to come to glorification. So secondly, yea, justified, oh, blessed thought. Justification, I'm not going to spend as much time on that because we spent a lot of time 
on this doctrine of justification in chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, but I will hold up for you that this is a massive truth in our understanding of the gospel. It's a legal declaration. To be justified is a legal declaration. Where? In the courtroom of heaven. That God declares righteous sinners one way. By faith in Jesus Christ. God declares righteous those who are guilty and worthy of condemnation. This legal declaration is made based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So something beautiful happens here. This is at the heart of the gospel. That by faith in Jesus Christ, who's the righteous one, by faith in him, God imputes, he credits to my life, the righteousness of Christ by trust in him. It's not by self-righteousness. It's by the righteousness of Christ. So I need, if I'm going to be declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven, I need a righteousness outside of me. And that righteousness can only be found in Jesus Christ. A lawbreaker and a rebel like myself, I have no hope of being declared righteous in heaven before the God who sees everything. And that is why Jesus Christ came. The Apostle John writes of him, my little children, these things I write to you that, that you sin not, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he paid the wrath. He paid the wrath penalty that I rightly deserve so that by trusting in Jesus, what God does is he credits the righteousness of his son that is a completed work. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God his work is complete once and for all. That by trusting in Him, God imputes His righteousness to me so that when God looks at a believing sinner trusting in His Son, He does not hold their sin against them. Am I talking to a religious bean counter this morning? Am I talking to, a, 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 you know, I come to church, but man, I'm locked into this idea that somehow God's against me and i got to work harder and maybe by the mere fact that I'm here today, He'll like me better? That's exhausting. I'm praying that the good news of the gospel would come into your religiously tired heart and maybe that could be helpful in understanding why you don't delight in Jesus more than you do. It's always a chore to do anything for Him. Which is not the picture of salvation we see in the Bible. Serve the Lord with gladness. I remember when I was first called to the ministry, it wasn't long after I was saved. And talking with some of my friends and family, often it was like, you know, I had just been diagnosed with a melanoma. Wow, a lifetime of church. Sounds like a great life, Jim. Go get them. I wouldn't trade this life <laughs> for anything. He has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Yea, justified, O oh blessed thought. A couple of weeks ago, it was Reformation Day. You thought it was Halloween, but it really was Reformation Day. And I was reminded of the importance of the Reformation, which 
I guess if you needed a historical point, was in October of 1517 when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, taking to task the errors of the religious system of the time. So the, re- the Reformers and the Puritans regularly referred to the damnable doctrine of doubt. And that is how they dismissed how the Roman Catholic Church talked about salvation. And so the Roman Catholic Church officially taught, and by their current catechism still teaches, and by the way, this is not some malicious rant against Catholicism. I have friends that are Catholic. This is just stating what is. By their current catechism still teaches that it is errant presumption for an individual to be confident that they will go to heaven when they die because they don't know if they'll commit a mortal sin. And even if they don't commit mortal sins, they have other sins to work off in purgatory. The only people we can know are in heaven are those the church has told us by canonizing them. Those are the saints. In a Roman Catholic understanding, in a New Testament standing, the saints are referring to all believers. So when you tell a Roman Catholic friend you know you're saved. Your Roman Catholic friend in all innocence hears a very prideful statement. They hear you saying that you think you're perfect. It is an offensive statement. Of course, the evangelical means a very humble, common statement. I'm saved, but it's not because of what I bring to the table. It's because of God's grace in my life. I'm trusting Christ, and I'm trusting Him to save me. It sounds very different in the Roman Catholic system and shows how big the divide is. Assurance of salvation is one of the doctrines worked out from the text of Scripture. So this this is a precious truth, brothers and sisters, that you can go to sleep tonight knowing you're at peace with God. And it's not arrogance. And it's not self-promotion. You can pillow your head tonight and know you're okay with him. And that the one who watches over you neither sleeps nor slumbers, though you snore the night away. He who keeps you watches over you always. But this assurance, this thought of I can pillow my head and know that everything is okay with God, that was not the reality in Europe in the 1500s. At least not according to what the church taught. God always has His remnant. So when this gospel began to be declared of the free grace of God in Christ, it brought a spiritual awakening Oh my, I can't, I can know God, people were saying. I can know God loves me and that I will spend forever with him. I don't die in doubt, fearing this horrible millennium of 10,000 years in purgatory, being purged and cleansed, and then maybe, maybe I might make it to paradise. But I can actually die with confidence, the confidence of the thief on the cross who in that moment on the cross found miserable uh, meaning to his miserable life. You mean I can die with confidence like the Apostle Paul who said, 
for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You mean that's for me? I can know that? And the answer is yes. Friends, there's a reason that the Protestant Reformation lit up Europe. And I pray that it would light up your heart and mine. Yea, justified. Oh, blessed thought. Oh, glorious thought. Let's move on to the fifth link in this chain. How long is this chain? Five links. Here's number five. It's in verse 30. And, the, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? That's not something we experience now. That is future. But again, I think Paul wrote it in the past in order that we might know that the promises of God are that sure and secure. You can build your life on it. This is your future hope, believer. Wayne Grudem defines glorification as the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises the dead of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like His own. That's what Paul was referencing here in verse 29 where he talked about He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son, the living, resurrected Christ. Two things to know. Maybe you're wondering, where's sanctification in this chain? It's there. It's in being conformed into the image of Christ now and ultimately in glory. And maybe a second question, why is glorification in the the past tense? And again, the certainty of God's promise. But glorification speaks of heaven. When's the last time you thought of heaven? And the culminative plan of God. What we've traced through this link of a chain of five links is an eternity past in the council of the Trinity. A plan was birthed in the plan of God and in the working out of God to display His glory. God would redeem a humanity. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came. Born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law. The Father loved the Son perfectly. Love expresses itself, and the salvation of sinners is a love gift from the Father to the Son. How do we know that? Because Jesus said that in John 17. I've manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He also said in verse 9, I ask... On their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So in the council of the Trinity from the beginning, the Father and the Son had perfect fellowship. The Father loves the Son perfectly. And in the plan of God from the foundation of the world, God would send forth His Son so we could say with gusto and great hope, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, that whoever's you, that whoever's you believes in Him has eternal life, will not perish, and has everlasting life. This is not salvation in general. This is specific. God has not simply made salvation available, and it's up to you. It's God moving 
and all the processes to bring this life to you. And this is where it says it ends, in glory. (laughs) Glory. You know, one of the griefs of my heart is that heaven is so trivialized today. And I write about that in chapter 16 of my book. It was my favorite chapter to write. And what I'm wanting to preach and try to recover is the thrill that should be in your heart and mine that we are headed for glory in Christ Jesus. A resurrection body by which to live all of eternity with our great God. Heaven is the eternal home of the believer. And with such a glorious hope, we don't talk about heaven much. Or when you do, it's so trivialized. I, I, I did a Google search on heaven. That's really not helpful. There's a burger place in Seattle called Burger Heaven. Disney said all dogs go to heaven. Um, Barbara Walters did a series on heaven from the various religions. If you want any insight, don't watch that. And so I I was reminded of uh, the station wagon my parents owned when I was a young child. You remember the station wagons? You could land an F-15 jet on the hood. And it was a god-awful color. And the air conditioner didn't work. And we lived in Florida. And I can remember my mother because we hoped against hope if we just turned the fan on, life would be better. And I could remember my mother saying, turn the fan off, that's not even refreshing. And, and that's, that's how heaven is with many people. It's just not refreshing. It's for somebody else who's lost their mind. I'm wanting to say it's for us to take in how God has revealed this to us and to long for it, knowing that we all have a duty now to run the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, but knowing that we're destined to see Him and to be with Him, saved to sin no more. We will see God, Revelation reveals to us, C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. We will see him as he is. We will worship him, not like today. There's never been a worship service that we've been a part of that hasn't been tainted by our sin and where our mind goes in an hour and a half. Perfect worship perfect service, perfect rest, perfect adventure, a new heaven, a new earth. Allow this to fill your mind. Perfect adventure to enjoy God's new creation without the capability of sinning and to have His full attention. How can that happen? You know, with Myriads of myriads of believers. How can God give attention? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. You think He's like you, and He's not. 
In fact, that's what Asaph said in Psalm 50. He said, you thought I was altogether like you. What a foolish, stupid thing for you to think. We'll be reunited with loved ones. Heard this week a woman say, my husband died six years ago. You could just hear in the voice, it still hurt. To be reunited with loved ones in Christ. Richard Baxter, a Puritan, wrote, he expressed his longing for that comfort. I know that Christ is all in all and that it is in is the presence of God that makes heaven heaven, but yet it much sweetens the thoughts of that place to me that there are there such a multitude of my most dear and precious friends in Christ. I think of my dear mother who died a year ago this month and have thought through this year of grieving for her. There's, there's rarely a week that goes by that I don't think that I'm the beneficiary of her input into my life. And she's there with him. And one day we're headed there. Every believer in Christ. Saved to sin no more. If loved ones are in hell, won't that spoil heaven? No. No, it won't. Because when we're in the presence of God and these things that are but a mere shadow are made perfect, we will see things as they are. And as we've mentioned in previous messages, it'll be a collective, well, of course. God's justice, God's righteousness. Nobody's going to step up to the bar like a lot of these interviews on the street. I'll tell you what, you know, that kind of attitude. I'm going to mount cases and arguments against the supreme sovereign of the universe. No, you won't. You'll be silent. Every mouth will be stopped. What will our resurrection bodies be like? You know, and this is one of the, this is the full orb Christian hope. Not that we're going to be a disembodied spirit where we float around in the clouds like cherubim. But we will have a resurrection body that is no longer susceptible to cancer and disease and death and a thousand tragedies that happen in this world. But we'll have a resurrection body. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 15 says. We'll have a body by which to live with Christ forever. Randy Alcorn has written probably better than anyone that I've read on this. He says, we will stand on the new earth and see it, feel it, smell it, taste its fruits, and hear its sounds. Not figuratively, literally. We know this because we're promised resurrection bodies like Christ's. He saw and heard and felt And as he cooked and ate fish, he presumably smelled and tasted it. We will too. We will too. New relationships. Will it be forever? It's hard for us to put that in our mind because everything we know in this life has a beginning and an end. You buy something new one day and it's falling apart in just a little time. I don't care how well it's made. But heaven, glorification, it has no end. That's why it's called eternal life. Well, here you are in real time on a Sunday morning in November of 2023 in this gospel that was birthed in the heart of God 
before the foundation of the world has come full stop to your life. And it's centered upon Jesus Christ, His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it reaches to you now in a general way as I'm sowing it into your life that God demonstrates His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the call for you is to repent, to turn from your sins, and to fully trust in Him as your only God and your only Savior. Am I talking to a young person here this morning like Valor Babin? Maybe you haven't given much thought to what it means to follow God, but your spirit's stirred. You know you need Him. Listen to Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember Him. Because you're going to get older and the, the years will fly by. Serve the Lord now. Call upon Him now while He's near. I don't know. He's, he's near. Wherever the gospel promises are extended, He's near. Maybe you are a believer, but you've never followed Him in obedience through believer's baptism. The, the, the baptistry will be filled next week. It'll be filled next week. Be glad to add your name to the list. Let's pray together. As we close this service, do you sense your need for a Savior? Have you come to see that you cannot make yourself right with God through your works? Has the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus come alive to you with significance? Do you want Jesus to guide and reign your life? Are you prepared right now to put down your unbelief and come to Christ on His terms? For those in that category, that's what this responding in faith is a time for responding right now. Maybe the Lord has put other things on your life, on your heart, and you need His help. Call out to Him. He will hear you. He will come to you. Lord, in these closing moments, May we think of your great promises to us from start to finish. And may we yield ourselves to you in complete obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.